Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim the bookshelf and read the world. Today, I'm talking to Alyssa Washuda about her essay collection, White Magic, which is out now from Tin House. To find a complete transcript of our conversation, head over to our website, readingwomenpodcast.com, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. So today, I'm so thrilled to be able to talk to Alyssa Washuda about her essay collection, White Magic, because it has been on my TBR for probably years. Uh, I remember talking to Mallory White Duck a few years ago. I think that was back in 2018. Was it really that far back? Either way, I will link that episode down in the show notes and you can go check that out. I really appreciated the way that Mallory White Duck talked about Native women memoirs, in particular the work of Alyssa Washuda. She recommended My Body is a Book of Rules, which is an earlier essay collection by Washuda, and I just fell in love with the author. And so I have been following her work ever since, and I'm so thrilled that this book is coming out. There's also an audiobook for White Magic, which there wasn't for her previous work, which makes it more accessible to me and other folks who use audiobooks. Alyssa Wushita does a great job of talking about chronic illness and mental health and being a Native woman and what that's been like for her as an artist. And uh, there are just so many different things that Wushita combines in her essays that I become completely enraptured to her writing and have just become a huge fan uh, over these past few years. And particularly with White Magic, it is everything that I hoped it to be and is definitely uh, probably my favorite nonfiction book that I have read this year so far. It is fantastic. It's beautifully published by Tin House. They did a great job with the book as an object. It is, I think, over 400 pages, but it didn't feel like that because each and every time I just wanted more and more from this writer who is such an incredible talent. So before we jump into the conversation, a little bit about Alicia Washuda. She is a member of the Cowlitz Indian tribe and is a nonfiction writer. She's the author of My Body is a Book of Rules and Starvation Mode, and her book White Magic is out now from Tin House Books. With Teresa Warburton, she is the co-editor of the anthology Shapes of Native Nonfiction, Collected Essays by Contemporary Writers. She has received fellowships and awards from the National Endowment for the Arts, Creative Capital, Artist Trust, For Culture, and Potlatch Fund. Alyssa is an assistant professor of creative writing at The Ohio State University. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the wonderful Alyssa Washuda. Well, welcome to the show, Alyssa. Thanks so much for having me. I am so over the moon to talk about your book, but how are you feeling when we're recording? It's about to come out. It's not quite out. We're kind of like gearing up for the, the big launch. I'm feeling pretty good. It's hard to believe that it's coming so soon because it took so long to write. And I've been anticipating this for ages, but... It's been a busy time, and so time is just flying. And I'm really excited for people to have the book soon. So uh, you have a long history of writing nonfiction and uh, editing an anthology. And I, I really loved how, in the introduction of um, Shapes of Native Nonfiction, you used an analogy of a basket to talk about essay writing. So for you heading into this collection that is, again, like all your own, what was the particular challenge for you having done these other things going into this new collection? I think the biggest challenge for me at the outset of this project, and really at the outset of my first book, and I imagine this will be true of anything that I do in the future, at least for this foreseeable future. My challenge is that I really love the form of the extremely linked essay collection. I think of this and My Body is a Book of Rules as both being simultaneously essay collections and I guess memoir is the word. I think of it more as just a book-length personal narrative. So 
the challenge with that is at the outset, I don't know what the arc is going to be. I don't know what the end point will be. I don't know what's going to be in the book at all, really, beyond what I'm working on presently and the little to-do list of essays and notes I have, you know, in a text file somewhere. So there's a lot of tension in the process of getting started on a book or really in the entire process of writing the book. But I used to think that it was really scary, but now I see it as a very productive tension in this kind of gentle fear that I am never going to pull off this project. By now, I know that I will. I have a proven ability to write books at this point. I've done it a couple times, uh, and so I have some confidence I will do it again. But, you know, in starting White Magic, I did not have that confidence that I was going to be able to write another book because I just knew too much about writing a book. (laughs) And I really wanted it to be... Uh, you know, a very controllable experience. I needed certainty that I was going to have another book, that it was going to do what I wanted. It was going to go where I wanted. So, you know, I didn't know what the shape was at the outset at all. And it took me a long time to write toward the shape of an entire book because structure at the book level and structure at the essay level are so different. They're related. And I think they sort of move the same way in some ways. But when you scale up to a book, there's just so many different things that need to happen. So I was thinking a lot about form really from the beginning of my time as a nonfiction writer. And definitely co-editing that anthology, Shapes of Native Nonfiction, gave me so much more language for what I was doing with form because of how much Teresa and I talked about it. We wrote about it in the introduction, and I was really reading all of these essays in the anthology through the lens of formal examination. So I think I also got a lot of confidence in my understanding of form from the anthology experience. I really finally, after going through peer review and having a book come out (laughs) on form, I really finally felt that I had, I could trust myself with it. You ended up with this amazing structure for White Magic. And I just look at the table of contents and it just makes me so happy. Uh, in a, a previous life, I was um, a developmental editor and structure was my joy. And so when I saw this and you have, um, you have, I believe, three acts and there's like a little introduction to each one. And it's it's very playful in a lot of the ways that you set up the essays. And um, I, I adore your footnotes and the, <laughs> the fun that you have with it. So you talked about how, you know, pulling things together for a book length project is very different. Uh, what was the process like for you working on this from the various separate essays to coming together with this full length structure that is just so... It's just beautiful. Thank you. I'm looking at the table of contents now because it was such a sort of like scattered experience for years. I don't know. Some of these essays were, I started them out in very different form as early as 2012. So there are essays in here that go back, you know, small parts of these essays. Some of them go back to 2012. There's one I started in 2014, one in 2015, one in 2016. And then in 2017, I think I really hit my stride and started to feel like something had clicked. I didn't totally know what the book was going to be about. But once I wrote Little Lies and The Spirit Corridor, which are the two essays that open Act One, I felt like I had finally gotten to the beginning of the book. Other things that I had written felt like they were going to be relevant. I was going to bring them in somehow. But now I had the starting point by early 2018. And for me, the starting point was 
basically a narrative problem to be worked out. And the problem was that I could not go get over my ex-boyfriend. And, you know, I knew that the solution to that problem was not going to be to find a way to get him to take me back. Although I tried, I think I knew deep down that the solution was in narrative. It was in figuring out what was behind that what what was so interesting to me that I wanted to hang on to this relationship because I had a feeling it wasn't that he was that interesting, but there was something in my attraction to him and my attraction to the relationship that I found fascinating. I started going down different research rabbit holes and pulling in different texts that were important to me. And then I had my starting point and after that, you know, I, I went back to some of the earlier essays and tried to figure out where they fit into that process of answering that question. Um, so Act Two is really about like 2015, 2016, getting sober and trying out relationships and sobriety for the first time, which was a bigger deal than I thought it was going to be. Um, and not for the reasons I thought it wasn't because I was so socially anxious that I needed to get drunk to go on a date. Uh, although there were times that was true. Really. It was that the way I felt in when relationships weren't going well was so bad that I felt like I needed to escape it. And that was, I think, a large source of my drinking activity. So act two is about the process of getting sober and figuring all of that stuff out. So it's sort of the, the backstory to the relationship introduced in act one. And then act three is about, you know, going back to that initial relationship and the heartbreak after that and how that relationship became a catalyst for me to become the less anxious person that I am now, basically. There, you know, I had found through this writing that I knew that I was in some kind of self-destructive relationship cycling pattern, but I didn't know the full contours of those time loops that I was going through. And through the course of writing the book, I actually got very intimately familiar with my patterns and was actually able to break them. And so that's really what the arc of this book is. It's about understanding the patterns and the cycles. It's a, the narrative arc is, you know, I, I do think of it very much as, a narrative arc. And I think that I had dramatic structure in mind very much when I was kind of like really imposing the act, the three act structure and introducing each act and commenting on how narrative works. I was really thinking about this whole process as an arc that could be, you know, the, charting the tension in the process of trying to answer really big high stakes questions for myself. And I really love that attention to how narrative works, not just within each essay. And you talked about how uh, you imagine this as like a linked essay. So somewhere between like an essay collection and memoir kind of situation and the way that you use that X structure pulls it together, uh, but also this idea of white magic, which um, of course, is the title of the book. And in the beginning, you have an introduction that talks about the different ways uh, that you use the term white magic, what that connects to from magicians uh, to different kinds of witchery. And uh, so I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that title and how it came to you as the title for this collection of essays that you had been working on. And was that something that pulled the ideas together for you? Yeah. So for a long time, I was imagining the working title of this collection as being Indian Senses, which came from um, 
A quote from Last of the Mohicans, I believe the quote is, the boy has Indian senses and may hear what is hid from us. And when I read that in college, I was really fascinated by this idea of, you know, just the supernatural that is placed upon us. Um, But, you know, as I was working, I realized this is not just about being Native. This is there's a lot of this book that is about um, my father's family and, you know, being descended from coal miners in anthracite coal country in Pennsylvania. That is a really big part of who I am. And I hadn't really gotten into it that much or at all before um, starting work on this book. Of course I, I knew a lot about it, but I had never written about it. So and there was also my engagement with what I've called white people's art. Uh, and I don't know, I guess like Twin Peaks and uh, the Oregon Trail video game. Really, this is meant primarily for white audiences, um, but it's part of the cultural material that's available to me. And these are some of the things that I love and examining, you know, Twin Peaks and Oregon Trail, the movie, The Prestige, and all, you know, the music of Fleetwood Mac and the video of the dance in which they are, uh, with Lindsay and Stevie are singing to each other. Um, All of these were tools that I was using to build this narrative. And I don't know, I just sort of had a question, like, what's that about? Because I found it so interesting that there were so many points of intersection and overlap with my life. Like in the Oregon Trail video game, there's a way to play it so that I can get to Fort Vancouver and arrive there at the time when my ancestors were being held there after the hanging of their leadership, including um, one of my ancestors, there's a way to play the game so that you can get there at that time and trade with Chinook people who are our relatives. So there was that, you know, I wrote a little bit about Friday the 13th, which was filmed really close to where I grew up. And the landscape of that film is very much visually the landscape I'm familiar with from my childhood. The book is very much about the magic of narrative and the magic of, of art, of video games and movies and television and books, and how captivating that is and how it you know has helped me to see myself in a way and not always or not usually really in the fact that I'm represented there because I'm usually not but because there's a mirror of different parts of my world it's sort of like a funhouse mirror sometimes to see you know my childhood a place where I grew up to be represented in a way that's kind of familiar, but kind of not. So I think White Magic is about, as a title, is about all of that. And of course, it's a comment, uh, which I talk about early on, it's a comment on the way so many witchcraft websites and New Age websites generally talk about white magic as being good, pure of intention, beneficial, Black magic is said to be selfish or malicious. It's not to be messed with. But the more I looked into this, the more I realized that that's just racist. So much of what is called black magic is indigenous in origin and largely not indigenous from this place, but indigenous from various parts of the world. There's a lot of just regular everyday spiritual practice that white witches lump into the category of black magic. And 
say is destructive and harmful and selfish. So the title is, it's meant to do something that I start up in the beginning of the book, which is calling attention to that idea um, and then complicating it by talking about the idea of the cultural creations of white people and just taking an honest look at the ways that they've influenced me. And we'll be back with more from this episode of Reading Women after a word from our sponsor. A sponsor of this episode is Ancient Nutrition. So if you're into researching your health and looking at different supplements like I am, you don't have to scroll very far down your newsfeed to find a story about the restorative effects of collagen. It's all the rage, but it's way more than just hype. Get the very best collagen on the market from Ancient Nutrition. Their best-selling multi-collagen protein powder includes five different types of collagen. It is the first and only collagen on the market with clinically studied ingredients proven to help reduce joint discomfort as early as day one, improve fine lines and wrinkles after four weeks, and transform your overall skin tone after eight weeks. It's unflavored and dissolves in any liquid, so put a scoop in your morning coffee, smoothie, or even baked goods. My mother-in-law puts her uh, collagen powder in uh, fruit juice sometimes, and so that works really well for her. Uh, For me, whenever I have taken collagen, I really uh, have to agree with her. I really like putting it in a fruit juice or in a smoothie. That's really my go-to. Right now, Ancient Nutrition is offering 20% off your first order when you go to ancientnutrition.com right now and enter the code READINGWOMEN at checkout. That's ancientnutrition.com. Enter promo code READINGWOMEN for 20% off your first order. ancientnutrition.com. Enter promo code READINGWOMEN at checkout. And of course, all of that information will be in our show notes. Thanks so much to Ancient Nutrition for sponsoring. I I really love what you said about the funhouse mirror because I have always been terrified of carnivals and clowns and I have this memory of going into a funhouse and being terrified and going into the mirrors because you see so many versions of yourself and you see those versions of yourself and you're terrified of what you see because you're seeing parts of yourself you normally don't. And you're also, part of me always expect one of them to come alive and start moving on their own. And it was really difficult to pin, pin that down sometimes. And so when you, you have in your essays, all these different parts of yourself, and then you also integrate different types of media, like you said, from video games to music. And at first I always wonder like, how is she going to put these things together? Like on the surface, a video game, Oregon Trail, and a certain topic might not seem like they go together, but you start discussing them and weaving them together, and then it makes sense. And I also realized by the end of the essay, you're analyzing a different part of yourself as well. And somehow you have done all of that in an essay, uh, so that by the time you I, I get to the end, it's like, okay, yes, I, I see this. I see this part and then you move on to the next. And that's something that I really loved about each of the essays was that process. Because not only do you have the overarching narrative, but each essay itself has that narrative that brings things together. At some point in studying nonfiction, I was introduced to the concept of the associative leap and really embraced that as a way to not necessarily provide trans transitions between different pieces of knowledge and examination and insight and memory, et cetera. Not necessarily to provide transitions, but a lot of the time to um, to build in implicit linkages between thoughts and topics. And the more I worked with confidence in this form, the more I realized it was such a fit for the way that I thought. And this became so much clearer in, uh, I believe it was 2019, I was diagnosed with ADHD. And once I started reading about that and 
was able to think about the movements of my mind in a more neutral way, rather than thinking, you know, that I was, there was something about my thinking that was flawed. Once I realized this is a feature of how my mind works, at the same time I was writing, I was really able to see um, there's a relationship between the kind of writing I'm drawn to doing and the way I just naturally think. Naturally, I get intensely focused on something of interest for a little while and, you know, pursue it obsessively. It's always extremely niche and idiosyncratic. And then I kind of move on. And I saw this as already being part of my writing, but I think I really leaned into it once I was thinking about it more. At the essay level, the the prose is built on these associative leaps where I'm trying to think through a problem or answer a question. And the starting place gets me to another thing that's related. And then I think of something that's related to that. And then introducing so much research into the process, which was not totally new for me, but was somewhat new, at least, you know, at this level um, and magnitude. Introducing research took me to even more associations. And I just let all this happen and just folded it in. Did it while, like you said, having fun. I really was enjoying this whole process. Of course, there's a lot of pain in writing about trauma, but I think that there was a lot more curiosity and happiness uh, and playfulness in writing this book than there was, I don't know, triggeredness and trauma. It was mostly just really fun to do all this research and to allow myself to just go wherever and end the essay whenever I felt it was done. I really love that. I think it goes to show how neurodivergence like ADHD can provide a new perspective on art and and writing in this case. And I really appreciate that as someone who also thinks differently in that way. And I I don't know, it made sense it, it made sense to me. It was like it was a natural groove that my brain wanted wanted to go on. And so when I read it, I could feel that joy in the book. There are a lot of difficult topics that you address in the book, but I could see that you as a writer were enjoying, you just have to read the the footnotes, know that you're having a, a good time in a lot of the ways of the way you introduce things and the meta playfulness that you have. And that was just something so enjoyable to experience. And I just would sit there and giggle myself on the couch and my spouse was probably wondering what on earth is going on. But um, it, was, it was just joyful in that way. And that's something that I really appreciated to see. It's always great to see someone enjoying their art that much in that way. I'm so glad to hear it. So I have used footnotes a lot in my work before, and <laughs> I listen to literary Twitter. You know, I pay attention to, <laughs> I pay attention to the discourse. Uh, I usually keep myself from engaging in it uh, for my own good. But, you know, I've certainly noticed that a lot of people think the use of footnotes is cliche, played out, whatever. I don't know. There's a lot of negative feelings about footnotes. There are also a lot of negative feelings about epigraphs. And I love epigraphs. <laughs> I I mean, I don't care about them that much in other people's work, but they're for me. I love mm-hmm. And I love putting them in my own work. I don't know. I just thought one day, wouldn't it be funny if I just had the same epigraph on every essay? (laughs) (laughs) And then I did it. And I thought that somebody was going to tell me at some point that I wasn't allowed. I mean, not because of (laughs) copyright. I mean, of course, there's that concern. Um, And I was attentive to that. But I just thought at some point my editor was going to say you can't do that you gotta get rid of that that's too weird but that didn't happen I just put in the same epigraph over and over because I really liked this poem by Alice Notley that I was able to quote in its entirety and a couple of lines from a poem by Louise Erdrich that I love so much when I put them at the beginning of 
just about every essay in the book, I realized how much they took on additional and different meaning as I went along. There was just something about these words that spoke to all of these different facets of the situations and experiences I was talking about. My thoughts around it at first, you know, when I first put them in, I was thinking it was just going to be a way to tease the reader a little bit. Like, are you paying attention? Are you paying attention to these epigraphs? Like, have you actually been reading? Have you noticed that they're, they're back? But, you know, it really became like an incantation very quickly once I realized what was happening with them. Um, it was like a prayer to say it over and over again. Um, the footnotes came later when I realized that a lot of the reasoning for the existence of these you know, repeated epigraphs, a lot of it was just in my head and was not actually coming through. So I just started footnoting them with a conversation with the reader, which is just asking the reader to think about their own experience of reading, what they bring to reading, what they expect of a book, how they know whether a book is good or not. These were all questions that I was thinking about so much as I was teaching Native American literature at my university. And my amazing students and I had so many conversations about discomfort as a reader and being on the outside as a reader. I was the only Native person in the room in that class. And they were all really up for the experience of, you know, being on the outside of some knowledge and cultural experience and learning to be okay with not being the intended audience necessarily for all of these books. I was thinking so much about that as I was finishing up writing this book. Um, I was doing one of my last revisions that semester and that's when I put in the three-act structure and was just really so conscious of the fact that I knew this book wasn't going to be for everyone and I needed to let the reader know that I knew that and I was okay with it. And we'll be back with more from this episode of Reading Women after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode is Acorn TV. While TV has been the saving grace for many of us, I'm sure by now a lot of you feel like you're caught up on every single show imaginable. If you're tired of scrolling through the same movies or shows and miss the excitement of weekly releases and brand new binge fests, then you have to get Acorn TV. Acorn TV is the largest commercial-free British streaming service that features compelling stories, exclusive premieres, and originals you won't find anywhere else. With Acorn TV, there's always something new to discover. One of those shows is Murdoch Mysteries. In this beloved award-winning Canadian series, Detective William Murdoch solves turn-of-the-century Toronto's most intriguing mysteries with the help of Constable Crabtree, Dr. Julia Ogden, and Inspector Brackenreed. And as always, I love Vera. I'm always here for a jaded older woman, female detective with a chronic illness, like hashtag relatable. If you're ready for a streaming service that offers new stories, new characters, and breathtaking scenarios every week, do what I did and get Acorn TV. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use our promo code readingwomen, but you have to enter the code in lowercase letters. That's acorn, A-C-O-R-N dot TV, code readingwomen to get your first 30 days free. And thanks so much to Acorn TV for sponsoring. When I saw the repeated epigraphs, it kind of forces the reader to do more close reading of those epigraphs. It puts you, because I feel like so many people, when they see them, they, they, they read them and they're like, oh, that's nice. And then they're, you know, they move into the book and they don't really think about or engage with those lines. And so that's something. So every time I would try to read it and find something new in them and engage with it. And that just really appreciate that encouragement. And I feel like that circles back around to 
you as a teacher, you mentioned teaching native fiction, and now you are at the Ohio State University. Mm-hmm. And as someone from Southern Ohio, I was, you know, originally, I'm very excited awesome. to hear that. <laughs> so, and also I'm from Appalachian, Ohio. So when you talked about your family having worked in the coal mines and in different generations, I was like, oh, okay. Like it, it just, it just clicked. And so I was listening to an interview that you did as a podcast, if I find it, I'll link it in the show notes for listeners. But you mentioned that when you're applying for jobs, because of your chronic illness, you only could apply for certain jobs. And that was always something in your mind with that. And I imagine, of course, it would also affect your writing. So I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that, about how you know most writers need another job, another income. And then you also want to work on your art. I, I guess more like for you, what is that like having a chronic illness and trying to make a a space for yourself in your art, but also in your career? Yeah, it's been, it's been an ongoing challenge. So for years, I knew that I wasn't well, uh, but I didn't, I didn't know what was wrong. I tried for so long. And when I was living in Seattle to try to get some kind of diagnosis, some kind of answers and, Never was able to. I just knew I was really, really exhausted and had these various sensations that were sim- symptoms. You know, I I knew I was unwell in various ways. And so I think it was really hard for me to make space for trying to be well when it seemed like maybe I was just imagining being sick. I just felt like I needed to push myself harder and uh, that if I needed rest, I was failing. But, you know, I did know that realistically I couldn't do a course load of teaching, you know, five courses a semester. It just wouldn't work for me. Uh, I just, I just don't have the energy. So at Ohio State, I teach three courses a year right now. It'll go up to four courses a year in a couple of years. And it's definitely an ongoing struggle to balance, you know, writing and teaching various other activities that are part of the job, um, trying to stay healthy, trying to have time for doing something I enjoy. I can't have all of the things I want all the time. It becomes really challenging when I am working on timelines that I didn't create, that I just have to be living within the set of deadlines that are not movable. You know, the semester is, you know, when it begins and ends, that's not negotiable. It begins when it begins, it ends when it ends. It doesn't matter how I'm feeling. And the process of having a book come out, there's lots of different deadlines within that too. And it all makes sense. You know, the book has to get to the printer. There's a schedule for a reason. Um, it's, it's not like it's unnecessarily malicious or something that I am expected to do the things that I'm supposed to do in the time that I am. Ellen Samuel's work on Crypt Time has been really helpful for me as a framework in just understanding why I feel like I cannot be completely successful and, you know, successful when it comes to feeling like I'm working well within deadlines and timelines. I can't, I can't do that. And I can't be well at the same time. Um, So, you know, in the last year, I've finally gotten part of what's going on diagnosed. Um, I have an autoimmune condition, I have Sjogren's. And so I'm able to, you know, I'm able to see or sense when I'm having flares and understand that my energy levels fluctuate. Uh, I have certainly noticed that I really hit walls when it comes to thinking. I can't read more than a certain number of hours per day. That number varies. I have, you know, I have no idea what that number is going to be tomorrow, but I know that there will be a wall at some point. There's always a wall for me at some point when it comes to critical thinking and 
time talking to other people. There's an interaction wall. I guess the wall has many bricks in it, <laughs> <laughs> but there is a wall. And after a while, when I hit it, there's nothing more I can do. It's such an incredibly powerless feeling. It really is. But I know that I'm just sort of within a process of creating a relationship with, you know, my body and my health. The wall is also not malicious. It's, I think it is my mind trying to protect me and tell me, you have to stop raiding now. Just do the work tomorrow. Just figure it out another time. Go play a video game. All that's to say, you know, even when I want to write, I can't always do it because I actually need to spend that mental energy on the things I'm obligated to do. There are just, you know, there's there's a lot of things I can say no to. I've gotten actually pretty good at that. Um, I certainly don't say yes to nearly everything that is asked of me, uh, which was not always the case. Uh, I, for a long time, felt like I had to say yes to everything. So now, you know, I'm only doing things I, you know, I'm really obligated to do um, and things I really want to do, but I can't even do all the things I really want to do. So within that, within all of those things that are, you know, my, my set of obligations and things that I have agreed to that become obligations. The thing that is flexible um, and the thing that I can eliminate without disappointing anyone else uh, is my writing. You know, that's the thing where there's give. Because I'm not going to beat myself up for not writing. I have, you know, I long ago learned that I had to be uh, kind to myself about that because I mean, when I was working on my first book and writing about trauma, there's really no way I could sustain writing about that like a thousand words a day or something for my entire life. <laughs> As you know, I've I've heard people recommend you got to get up and you got to do your thousand words or whatever for a short time. Yeah, I think I could do that, but I need to give myself some breaks. So, you know, I've always been able to be kind to myself. Uh, when it comes to not writing. So, you know, I just don't always do that when I want to. I'm trying to work on building myself a life that is better suited to being well. Now that I have a much better sense of what I need in order to be well, because I know what's wrong with me, I can I can do that a little bit better. So once the school year is over, I think you know, I'm basically taking the summer off. I'm hoping to write during that time. Um, I'm not going to push myself to do, an, you know, a, to be working on another book quickly, but there's lots of things I want to be writing. So I'm going to work on that and try to restart a little bit and figure out like, what is, what does a day look like where I get to do some writing if I want to, and I get to do some reading if I want to, and I'm able to get to my obligations. And I think if I can build a day that really works, the next day I will have more energy for doing all the things. So that's my that's my next project. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate you talking about that because I don't re- think that most non-disabled people realize how even art is built on non uh, on on non-disabled energy norms and all of this ability is structured around people who are not sick and there's this idea that if you cannot conform to that norm you don't deserve to make art or you don't deserve to do this or that or the next thing and uh that's something i i feel probably most disabled people who make some sort of art, whatever that is, from from knitting to those adorable cat fur felt creatures you can find on Etsy, like whatever it is. (laughs) I feel like it's a journey you have to go on to better understand yourself. I mean, Reading Woman exists because I could not find a job that I could work from home as a disabled person. So I was like, well, Mm -hmm. let's let's just go for it. Let's shoot for the moon. Let's just do this thing. And so I feel like there's so much, I don't know, you have to be 
your own project manager as a person with a chronic illness or disability. You have to understand like, okay, if I do this today, I can't do this tomorrow. And you have to plan out your week. I just really appreciate you sharing that as, you know, a journey. And so I deeply relate to your situation and I'm just so happy that you are able to see the success with this book because I don't think most people understand that you really have to fight for it when you're disabled in a way that other people don't. And that's, yeah, I'm just very happy for you. Thank you. Yeah, I've tried to be really open about all of this because I know that people see me generally as extremely productive and I suppose I am. I don't know. I think people need to know the cost, though. And I certainly want people to understand why I turn things down and why I'm not available to help with a lot of the things that I feel I should be available to help with. Spent a lot of my life helping and a lot of energy on other people. I think that in writing this book, I really let myself take up as much space for myself as I needed, which was, I mean, it came out to 425 pages. It was a lot longer at one point. (laughs) But, you know, I really needed to allow the process to take up space in my life and in my mind. And, you know, so, yeah, I want to be open with people about having... Sjogren's and uh, having ADHD, that's been a big one. I mean, I, you know, I am a professor who takes Adderall every day. I mean, I'll tell anybody anything, basically. Uh, that's just a feature of me. But, you know, I'm not ashamed of the fact that I take Adderall, um, that I require it in order to do my work. It's been a great drug for me. I think It is surprising for a lot of people that I'm very open about it, but I have to be, you know, it's no sacrifice for me to be open about it. And I know that it has actually helped quite a few people, particularly women who, you know, just thought the way that I did for so many years that ADHD is the condition of a rambunctious little boy, not of, you know, necessarily a woman who has trouble, you know, like a a 36 year old woman who has trouble focusing on conversations when there is music playing. Um, I learned about my diagnosis from asking a question on Twitter after I had a little party at my house and that exact thing happened. There was, um, it wasn't music, but there were other conversations happening when my friend and I were talking and I couldn't hear her. I just couldn't, I didn't understand what she was saying. I could hear her. I could hear the sounds, but I just could not process the words. So I asked about it on Twitter, and I think a couple people said, that sounds like maybe ADHD. You might want to look into it. Um, And so I did, and I found a doctor who spent a lot of time working on a diagnosis for me. It's a big part of my process. As I was saying earlier, it has been a real, been great in explaining to me why I have found so many parts of just regular work life to be impossible, Uh, like using Microsoft Outlook. And, you know, I know that I've, once I figured out how to pay attention to it, once I got medicated, my work became so much better and there was so much more ease in my life that I was just, you know, I want to share that with people if, if it's true for them, if, if they, if they have ADHD and don't know, uh, and it would help them to know, I hope I can give the, give them the idea that there's ways to look into it as an adult. Well, I, I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours more, but uh, before I let you go, I always like to ask the authors on, are there any books that you're reading now that you would like to recommend? Uh, you've mentioned a few different things um, the disability realm or maybe other indigenous authors, really anything that you would like to share with our listeners? I haven't been reading very much very recently, but two books that 
I recently read that I knew um, from friends who I'm actually doing book events with. Um, I would love to recommend Other Worlds Here, Honoring Native Women's Writing and Contemporary Anarchist Movements by Teresa Warburton, my very good friend, co-editor of The Shapes Anthology. She wrote about my work in here, but that's not the only reason I love it. Uh, Teresa is a settler and an anarchist, and this book is written toward other settler anarchists about the other worlds that are here. You know, it's it's not only that another world is possible, other worlds are already here, and settler anarchists have a lot to learn from Native women's literature. That's what this book is about, and it's really beautiful. And I loved The Disordered Cosmos by Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. It's a book about physics and the universe. I took physics in college. I kind of hit a wall with it and realized there were parts that I was that were just never going to click for me. I love that this book is a science book that is just so welcoming for everyone. Whether or not we have any familiarity um, coming into the book, it's not necessarily that we're going to, you know, be able to pass a physics exam by the end. I certainly can't. There were parts of the book that I still didn't understand, but I felt okay with it. I felt okay in experiencing this sense of passion and joy um, that this scientist has, um, not only because she's my friend, but because her vision of the universe is really beautiful. And I think that she and I are similarly in awe of the universe, but we took very different paths to get there. Well, I'm going to go put those in my cart and uh, (laughs) get ready for Indie Bookstore Day. So those are great options. Um, But thank you so much, Alyssa, for coming on and sharing uh, your work and your insight. It's been a lovely time. Thank you so much, Kendra. It was so great to talk with you. And that's our show. I'd like to thank Alyssa Washuda for talking with me about White Magic, which is out now from Tin House. You can find her on social media at Alyssa Washuda on Twitter and Instagram at Sharkwitch if you want to check her out on Twitch, which is pretty cool. You can find more information about Alyssa and her work at Washuda.net. Of course, all of these things will be linked in our show notes. Many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. This episode was produced and edited by me, Kendra Winchester. Our music is by Mickey Saito with Isaac Green. And you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Woman. Thank you so much for listening.